A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. In our episode today, an episode we're really excited about, as you'll discover in just a moment, is called Birth Story. Now, the whole hour is devoted to one story. One story about parenthood and gay rights, about fairness and bodies, about the differences between the developed world and the developing world. This story began almost exactly a year ago. One of the producers on our show, Maya Kosover, told us about something that happened the previous evening at her birthday party. Okay, it was party. We were all dancing, Israeli music, in the middle of Jaffa. It was her birthday, they were at her apartment, and this guy Tal... Tal was dancing with his partner. These are friends of yours? Yeah, Tal is kind of a megastar in the deaf community in Israel because he translates the news in the TV to uh, deaf people, to sign language. Oh, wow. So he's like the little guy in the corner of the TV. Yeah. And his partner? Amir. Amir or, or Amir? Amir. With an R. He's a psychologist that works especially with children that are autistic. Huh. Anyway, they're at the party. So we were dancing all together and then... Uh, Tal was, oh my God, maybe it's going to be the last party that I'm in because I'm going to be a parent. And not only a parent, I'm going to be a father for three. And then Whoa. we were like, 
Oh my god, three babies? So you might have recognized that guy talking to Maya. It's Jada Bumrad, the co-host of Radiolab, one of the shows that really inspired us to get into this whole world of podcasting. And the reason that Jad was talking to Maya just there is that this hour is actually our very first collaboration with Radiolab, which honestly is kind of like a dream come true for us. Now I'm sure many of you actually heard this story on Radiolab's latest episode, but even if you did, don't leave just yet. Hello. <laughs> hey Molly. Hi Mishi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. That's Molly Webster from Radiolab, who produced this piece. We got her on the phone. Hey Jad. Hey, how's it going? With Jad and Robert Krulwich, the other host of Radiolab, to talk about how this story was born. Hi. <laughs> hey, hey, hey guys. <laughs> how are you doing there? Yeah, we're fantastic. Yes. Ready to go. Caffeinated, feeling uh-huh. good. But really, we also just wanted to talk to them. So I hope you indulge us while we geek out on Radio Lab a bit. We're in New York. You are on the other side of, I think, two oceans at least. Well, at least an ocean and a sea. Wait, are yeah. you guys in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. You oh, just really? missed the uh, the horn that, sig- that oh, uh, it's Shabbat now. the beginning of Shabbat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. What are we? Is yeah. it? Is it? Is it wrong? Is it? Is it unkosher of us to speak to each yeah, other? Yeah, it's unkosher. Oh, yeah. It's forbidden to work on Shabbat. But <laughs> hey, I think it's okay. It's I think right. it's okay. <laughs> We're living in the new world. <laughs> anyway, this all began a few months ago when Robert came to Israel to be the keynote speaker at the IDC's radio conference. Right. Yes. And I met you. <laughs> um, we were all excited because somehow, somehow we ended up going out to dinner together. Yes, we did. It was a great dinner. <laughs> and it was across from one of the most, I think, of all the rooms I've ever stayed in in my entire life, that was the best hotel room of my life. No. And right across was this restaurant. Okay, so for us, meeting Robert was a big deal. But he was way more interested in the amenities of his hotel room. It was this little boutique B&B in South Tel Aviv, which has since become the private home of a Russian oligarch. I, I conducted tours of this place. It was so spectacular. I, I had Mishi come up. He's not joking, by the way. Before we sat down to eat, Robert, who could literally not stop raving about the room, insisted that we all come up to see the fabulous curtains. <laughs> and I could push a button on the wall behind my bed, and the the curtains, the, the the room would turn all kinds of beautiful colors and the Venetian blinds would half open, half close. Things would come. To- I, I was waiting for you to say something about the curtains. Robert had the entire team come up to his room to inspect these curtains. <laughs> Just to press the button. <laughs> I said, I have been given a gift which I want to share, which is curtains. <laughs> I think a lot of these people were thinking I was completely insane. But I, um, I also took pictures of it. And like to this day, Oh, you, you, almost a year later, I can still I go to my phone and I gaze at that room because it was like. Well, being I know a what king. we're doing after this phone yeah, call. Yeah, we're gazing. We're I guess gaze I can show you my photos. room. Oh yeah, it's really quite something. Wow. Once we had all taken turns pressing the buttons and seeing the blinds slowly open, we finally got Robert to go to the restaurant. When we were all, you know mildly starstruck and uh, and basically everyone was calling each other and, and texting each other and being like oh my god there's dinner with Robert Krulwich come over come over come <laughs> over and all kinds of people who hadn't been to a story meeting in half a year suddenly showed up um, 
<laughs> I see. So you had a little bit of a coming out. Well, no, party but yeah, college. but I, you know, usually I like to dominate the evening by like saying, and so then I, and then and then he, and then I. But the, but between all these people, like I was pretty much in the audience that night, as opposed to be the teller. Minus like, the minus the button pushing moment. Yeah. Minus the giant door of the apartment. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the button yeah. pushing. The dinner was this magical evening of story after story after story. I later told Robert that my life would be completely different if only some of my first dates would go as well as that evening. They probably just put you two at the end of the table. <laughs> should have done that. Just like, really? Let's just stick Robert and Mishi down there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the best. Between the windows and that dinner, I was the winner of that evening. We began this extensive correspondence, basically swapping random tales of pigs, of hell. Stay tuned for both down the line. And then we were in New York for our very first live show at the Manhattan JCC. One of our production interns, Barry Finkel, had previously interned at Radiolab and organized a visit. And, and you guys invited us to come to your pitch meeting. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Was, this, was this around the time of the earthquake? Jad's talking about the earthquake in Nepal in April 2015. No, it was exactly the time it of was, the It was. It was exactly the time of the earthquake. Right. And you had, you had just gotten that voice message from Tal. And you played it for us in the meeting. That, that 18 seconds where he's yelling and shouting and crying. Okay, let me explain what he's talking about here. Tal and Amir, that couple from Maya's birthday party, had begun a process of becoming parents through surrogacy. And we decided to follow that process, not really knowing what would come out of it. We gave them tape recorders and asked them to document themselves. They would send us snippets of those recordings, from Israel when they were waiting for the births, and then from Nepal where they went to pick up their babies. That message Jad's talking about, you'll hear it later on in the story, was from right after the earthquake. It was like getting a blast of some other world yeah, in the middle of like a very calm, placid editorial meeting. I just remember you guys coming into the meeting and you had like a bunch of ideas and then somehow you just started talking about this one and like it was like for the next 40 minutes we were all enraptured like popping popcorn like eating like please go on please tell what's next what's next no i was like i was reading this pitch man like this is the most bananas story i've I've heard in a long time yeah every single element of it just from our american ears felt strange and it just takes something you thought you knew about and flips it almost 12 different times the story itself is it, it is a mood that cannot settle. Sometimes you think, ew, yeah. and sometimes you think, oh, and sometimes you think, no, and sometimes you think, yes, and sometimes you think it of the same person. And it's, mm-hmm. it's the thing that's really interesting every so often is you find a story which is so richly conflicted in its nature that, uh, that every turn is big. Mm-hmm. There are no small turns in this one. All right, let's jump right into it. Act one, making babies. Jad, Robert, and Molly, together with Yochai Meital and Maya Kosover, take us to the very beginning of the story. The first thing that I saw in Tal is, is, uh, is his ability to be a father. This is Amir. Really? Yeah. How so? Because um, he was a good man, you know, he was very uh, gentle and, and really an adult uh, uh, to build a family. I don't know how to describe it. Mensch. I think Mensch. in, in yeah. America it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we know what that is. Hey, but did you see that like on first meeting or was this like four months in? Uh, mm. My career is established to work with autistic people and to take notice for every sign of 
<laughs> of communication and uh, and to understand other people and to uh, analyze them. So it was really immediate. I said, let's say after two or three uh, times, he said, okay, uh, I want children. So. Yeah. Are you interesting? I wrote a manifesto about my future, what I want to do, what I want to do in my career. It's kind of my vision. And I gave it to him and I said, listen, this is what I want. I, I, <laughs> Sign at the bottom, please. Yeah. yeah, it kind of was a contract. It's like, this is what I want. If you want to join me. Uh, so let's do it. So let's do it. And tell, what was your reaction to the, to the manifesto? <laughs> I like it. It looks like someone who... want the future did your own parents have any either of your parents have any views about that <laughs> saying don't or do or this is weird <laughs> yeah <laughs> suffice to say their families did not approve uh, especially when it came to the idea of them having kids now how to have those kids That is a question. Basically, there, there are two options if you're a gay couple and you want to have kids. There used to be three options. That's Yochai Maital from Israel Story. Here is how he and Maya laid it out for us. Option number one, which is now not as much of an option. You could adopt a kid from a third world country. But he says over the last few years, what happened is that those third world countries figured out who was adopting their babies. And one by one, they banned it for gay couples. Yeah. The second option, which is becoming very, very popular in Israel, is sort of the new family. That's what it's called in Hebrew, at least. Sort of getting together with another woman who wants to be a mother but doesn't have a, a father. And then they do a joint parenthood. They all live in the same house? No, the mother lives separately, and it's kind of like divorced parents that get along really well. They sign a contract yeah. before the process, and everything is like in the contract. Tal Namir said that early on, uh, they tried this route. Tal got uh, an offer from one of his friends to uh, do the co-parenting. But then I spoke with Tal and I asked him, listen, it's very important for me to have a baby of my own uh, with my sperm. I, and I said to Omer, I want to try, but I don't care if in the end we have only one baby in your sperm. So it will be my baby the same. I think I, I was more stubborn about it yeah. than Tal. Amir couldn't really explain why it was so important to him, just that it was important to him. But reflecting on it later, Maya from Israel Story put it this way. It's very Jewish and Israeli. I mean, if you are not in the Israeli mainstream, if you are gay or if you are different and you'll have your own baby, it's like a signature of being part of the game, you know? Whatever the reasons, uh, Amir and Tal talked it over, and then they went back to this woman, Tal's friend who had... offered to do the co-parenting. And we asked her if she can uh, obligate to us to bring two children, one of, uh, of Tal's sperms and one of my own. In the end, she said, no. And at this point, a year had gone by. So then we've decided that maybe the best option will be... Option three is, is surrogacy. Meaning, of course, if you're a gay man, that you take your sperm... take some eggs from a woman, put your sperm and those eggs into the womb of a second woman who carries the baby to term. But surrogacy is illegal in Israel. Only yeah. for gay couples, yeah. In Israel, if you're a hetero couple, you can use an Israeli woman as a surrogate. But if you're gay, you can't. So there's a big problem, but that problem also creates a big demand. As you can imagine, there are quite a lot of gay couples in Israel. And so the companies sprang up 
basically offering international brokering of sperm, eggs, and uh, ovaries. Babies outsourcing. You can see this play out every year at uh, these conferences in Israel. Conferences where they get prospective parents together. We are here for our first time in Tel Aviv. To so it's this big room of people. Several hundred people. Pretty much all gay men. Pardon me for not being able to speak Hebrew very well, or at all. Shalom. And basically what happens at these conferences is that surrogacy agencies will get up and basically sell their products. We now offer surrogacy in... Uh, Mexico, Thailand, Panama, the United States, India. Anybody been to Fort Worth? Very nice place. You can go see a basketball game. You can go see a baseball game. These agencies will find women in all of these places who will serve as the surrogate for your child. And depending on which country you choose and whether or not you provide the donor eggs or they do or a million other factors, the costs will vary. We offer very uh, competitive prices. For example, $36,000 complete start to finish in Mexico, $38,000 in Thailand. Anywhere from $65,000 to $85,000, $150,000. It could be that much. That's excluding the donor, of course, but we have a good selection of donors, including uh, Jewish donors as well. Yeah, yeah, we have session with the lawyers, you have session with, with the families, uh, you have session families with, with uh, doctors. Tal and Amir went to two of these conferences, successive years, and coming back from the second one... We take a calculator and uh, yeah. we start to, to think how we can make it. Raising money. Money, money, yeah. money, yeah. They figure if they go with a company that does surrogacy in the U.S. It's probably going to cost $150,000 or... Is that lawyers and... Lawyers, the yeah. hospital... Sperm delivery, uh, the egg donor. Uh, uh, there is a lot of people that we need to pay. And he says, keep in mind, when you pay that money, you are not guaranteed a baby. You buy a process. Yeah. We don't buy a baby. One of our friends did this kind of process and they spent five times and they still didn't succeed. Five times. Yeah. They figured with that kind of risk, doing it in the U.S. was just too expensive. And so they started looking at surrogacy agencies which operate in India and Nepal. Because over there, you can do the same thing, and it will cost you about $60,000. So it's almost half price. Almost a half price, yeah. Now, one of the tricky things, according to Yachai, is that in 2013... India basically outlawed surrogacy. For gay couples. I mean, if you're a straight couple, you can do surrogacy in India. But not if you're gay. Also in Nepal, by the way. Nepal also outlawed surrogacy. Effectively, the cabinet said, if you are a Nepali woman, you cannot be a surrogate, period. But there's sort of a loophole. Indian women are allowed to be surrogates in Nepal. Just Nepali women aren't allowed to be surrogates in Nepal. So what ends up happening is this really strange situation. It looks like a puzzle. These agents in northern India will find Indian women, move them across the border into Nepal, take them all the way to Kathmandu, where the surrogacy agencies have set up shelter houses and work with local hospitals and clinics. Maya says for Tal and Amir, the decision to do it this way was not easy. They, they had, like, different opinions. Tal had a bigger issue with the moral concept of this process. Yeah. Amir was like, this is the thing that we need to do. I want to be a father. But Tal... Tal was... It was very hard for him. I thought if it's, it's immoral to do things like that, to use another woman to give me a present like that and and I know she will never will see this baby anymore is it immoral because you're essentially like just 
using a woman's body or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can say it. He felt like he's using other people bad luck for his own good. Yeah. She has no choice. She's not doing it out of freedom. She's just yeah. doing it for the money and maybe it's not morally okay that we'll use this weakness. Talnamir went back and forth uh, on this for months and eventually the argument that won the day was this. That if they're going to do it, they're going to do it with this agency called Lotus, which, to their understanding, paid the surrogates $12,000. I mean, the surrogates were actually paid in Indian rupees, but that would be the dollar equivalent. $12,000. Now, for a rural woman in India, that is a massive sum of money. They figure this won't just help her survive. It will change her life. She'll be changing their life, and they'll be changing hers. Maybe this was... Um, kind of what, comfort. Yeah. They get money, they can change their life. They can mm-hmm. buy a house, they can send their, her children to, to school, uh, to learn in the university. When I thought and understand it will be life changer and it's not... Um, exploiting. Ex- exploiting her, so I agree. At the start of the whole process... One of the main issues was to pick the egg donor. And, like, who are these women? Like, where do they come from? Ukraine. They're from the Ukraine. They're all Ukrainian. What? That that is not a country I expected to be thrown into the mix of countries. The reason the eggs are from Eastern Europe are generally because... uh, They're white. Because they're white. So it's like cheap white eggs. Cheap white eggs. (laughs) Wow. That's quite a phrase. <laughs> so you have like a website and you see a lot of pictures of women. Yeah. And then you need to choose the most... Uh, it's like J-Date? Yeah. Jewish online dating service. Yeah, I think it was the most straightish <laughs> act that I did in a very long time. Oh, straightest. Oh, because you're picking yeah, out a lady. Yeah. 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 How did you decide which criteria you wanted in a, in a donor mom? Oh. Mm. The first one was height. You wanted someone tall. Yeah. Why? Why was height your first one? Because uh, it's more uh, easy to, <laughs> to live yeah. when you're high. Yeah. Okay. Then eyes. She has these big eyes. They showed Maya a picture. Light brown hair. And she has this nice nose. <laughs> it was, you know, very strange. It was very uncomfortable to choose. For me, it was very... How do you say it? Like a genetical... Uh, like improving... Oh, like, you eugenica? sound like you're doing like a eugenics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eugenics. Huh. Now, since Talnamir had each wanted a baby with their own sperm, they told Lotus... We would like to rent two wombs, one of each sperm, and to try to use like two surrogate mothers. Lotus said, fine, that's going to run you... About fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 each pregnancy. Again, no guarantees. So, Talnamir, they give Lotus their sperm in little cups. Lotus freezes the sperm, sends it to a hospital in Nepal. The Ukrainian woman, the egg donor, is flown to Nepal. Her eggs are harvested. Somewhere along the way, two North Indian women are moved across the border into Nepal. Finally, the doctors at that Nepali hospital take the Israeli sperm, inject it into the Ukrainian eggs, create some embryos, and they implant those embryos in the wombs of the Indian surrogates. Four countries, one baby. A few months go by, they get the news that both surrogates are pregnant. The process worked. One is pregnant with twins, three babies in all. They're sent 
sonograms, pictures of the surrogate's pregnant bellies. I all the time look on the picture of her, <laughs> all the ultrasound pictures, all the time looking on my cell phone <laughs> in the picture. Gastel says there wasn't really much he could do because for three or four or five months, not much happened. Until... Six months in. Six o'clock in the morning. Six o'clock in the morning. Dana from Lotus called us. And uh, Amir was answered the phone. And I hear him say, okay, they are okay. I wake up and say, what? Because it was too um, early. Too early. How early? About eight, uh, eight weeks uh, ahead. Wow. The surrogate who was carrying twins had given birth. I was crying a lot. <laughs> This is the surrogate carrying Tal's baby, which turned out to be two babies. Yeah. Were you on the plane the same day as getting that call? Or? Uh, day after. We, we fly from Tel Aviv to Istanbul and from Istanbul to Kathmandu. It was very crazy day. Uh, then Gil... Uh, this is one of Tal's friends who was also in Nepal for surrogacy. Took me to the hospital. And, wow, I, I was shocked because Gilly was so tiny. Gilly was 3.8 pounds, his brother Yuval, 4.8 pounds. And um, yeah, I, I was very scared to, uh, to touch him. He says he expected the twins to stay in the hospital for a month, but the nurses were like, nope, going home tomorrow. I I thought I don't have enough time to think because I understand tomorrow I need to take them home and to be alone, and I never take care of inner babies. So I I said to the nurses, teach me how to feed them. And uh, after three days, I took them home. So where was the surrogate during these days? Was she at the hospital? I think she was in the hospital, yeah. Because she had a a cesarean surgery. I was asked if she's okay Mm -hmm. and if she needs something. Mm -hmm. They said, you you cannot see her until she signed all the papers and then you can uh, see her. The papers hadn't been signed. Yeah, because we need that she's giving up all her maternal uh, rights. And if she doesn't want to sign on this paper, we can lose the baby. The laws on this get crazily complicated, but basically they needed Israel, India, and Nepal to all recognize that they were the uncontested parents. And hanging in the air. We've been terrified. It was a recent case in Thailand, which was all over the news, where the surrogate, after the baby was born, changed her mind. Lake and his husband believe the surrogate decided to try and keep the baby because she found out they were gay. We had a little bit of anxiety, let's say, if they were going to know that the baby is going to grow in a house with two dads. In any case, Tal is in Nepal with the twins. Amir is back in Tel Aviv. A couple of weeks go by, and then... Tal called me and said, Mazel Tov, you're a dad. The second surrogate had given birth. One baby. And day after, Tel Aviv to Istanbul. And from Istanbul to Kathmandu. 
And then it was very, very, very nice that we went. Uh, only us with the babies were like no parents, no friends, no phone. No phones, no work. To build the first uh, uh, blocks of our relationship with the babies. And for the next month, they lived in an apartment in Nepal. Just them and their three babies. Learning to be dads. And waiting for the paperwork to be done. Now, the paperwork, incidentally, is a beast, because after the surrogates sign away their rights, the babies have no nationality, and then they're suddenly illegally in the country. So then the guys have to take a DNA test, send it to Israel, get it verified, then they've got to get a passport for the babies, then several sets of visas need to be gotten, and all of that means multiple trips to the Israeli embassy. And it was on one of those trips that they learned something. It was really weird because we went over there with our uh, kids to get a passport. And over there, there was another surrogate from a different agency. An Indian woman. And standing next to her was an Israeli woman who happened to speak Hindi. And we just, like, you know, out of curiosity, we uh, asked her to ask the surrogate in Hindu uh, how much she's, uh, she's getting. For the whole process. Yeah. yeah. But the, the surrogate was very shy. Yes. Not very delighted to speak about the money. Which made them even more curious, so they persisted. And then uh, we discovered that... She get only 3,000 US dollars or something like that. $3,000 for the whole pregnancy. Amir was like, wait a second. In the agreement, $12,500 supposed to go to the surrogate. That was at least his understanding. Now, this was a different woman from a different agency, and this was just one woman's account. But still. In your narrative, you've described that you thought that the reason that this was okay to do, the surrogacy, is because you were, you, the phrase you use is, this will make a change in the life of the woman that we're yes, paying. Yes, a life-changing sum of money. Samaya so says they walked away from that meeting. Wondering if they should do something in Israel. You know, call the agency at the very least, say, hey, we heard some rumors. I'm sure they're not true, but what do you think? We started to ask questions, but then... Literally the next day. Horrendous scenes of death and destruction from Nepal today. After a powerful earthquake that started outside Kathmandu... A really big head of the death toll is now over 5,800, nearly 14,000 were injured. Officials say it is the most destructive earthquake to hit Nepal in more than 80 years. The death toll would ultimately rise to somewhere between seven and 10,000. Maya says she was in New York uh, in a meeting and she gets this voicemail from Tal. <laughs> And he was shouting, an earthquake just happened here. We saved the babies and we got down to the street. We're half naked. We don't know what to do. And he's crying over there. And then... It suddenly uh, stopped. They, he lost the connection. And it was... Uh, 
like 12 hours with no connection to them. We didn't know if they're alive or not. You know, everything was unknown. I don't know how, but Tal took his cell phone and we just ran barefoot. And- Amir says they ran out of the apartment, down the street, half naked, holding the babies and the phone. On the way, they ran into their friend Gil, who had four babies, another couple who had two babies. We are in this street and we are uh, uh, nine babies. They actually shot a video on Tal's phone. You see Tal only in shorts. A bunch of other couples holding babies, and they're all literally standing on a pile of rubble. As they're standing there, a guy with a badge walks by. You're a policeman? Ah, no. You're from the uh, American embassy? We are Israeli citizens. We have here nine, nine babies. We need help, please. We don't have food for the babies. Thank you. We need to go out from this place very quickly. To go out from here. Thank you. So they took us in to the embassy. The U.S. embassy? or the? No, it's no, 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 the Israeli embassy. They went to the Israeli embassy, and the Israeli embassy sort of went into emergency mode. Gave us uh, some blankets. And they put out, put out tents. And shortly after, the news cameras arrived. And Tal... Tal is, uh, Tal is he's like in the media and stuff because he's the, he's the sign language translator. And so he realized that he doesn't have any way of communicating back home that he's alive. So Yechai says uh, Tal shoved his way in front of one of the television cameras and started signing. 12 hours after the, the earthquake. Maya says she got a call from her partner back in Tel Aviv. And she said, they are on the news now. I can see Tal speaking sign language to his parents, saying everything is okay, they are alive, the three babies are with them, and they are waiting to the rescue team to come and take them. But what the cameras also captured was this scene that hadn't really been grasped yet. So this whole thing has been going on kind of quietly. Now you have an international earthquake. Everybody's watching the television. And in the middle of the story, there are like 10 Israeli babies and gay people. <laughs> and all these. Of, it was more than lot, 10 babies. Yeah, it How was, many I were think, there? 24 babies. 24? 24? Wow. Yeah. Yes. Whoa. Because there is another, another agency that agency. also... It's like all of a sudden you realize there's this pipeline of babies. Yes moving from Nepal to Israel. Yeah. Maya says when the images of those 24 babies splashed across Israeli TV screens. It was like the first time that uh, surrogacy was uh, discussed in the Israeli media such way. She says a huge debate broke out. One side of the argument was, okay, we are using women and it's, uh, it's unmoral. And from the other hand, there was like, okay, in Israel, for gay couples, they don't have a, a lot of choices, I mean. And everyone was asking, what do we do with all these babies and the surrogates? There was like a huge argument in the Israeli media about the questions of there are women that are waiting to, to give birth and we need to bring them to Israel to, to give birth here because the fathers are here. So they would fly the women to Israel, have the baby, and then yes. fly them back? Yes, They was talk about it. Yeah, they talked not... about it. But I don't know. I think that legally they could not do that. Well, because that just it feels like kidnapping a lady. Yeah. And so what, what happened was that very quickly Israel sent over a search and rescue and medical aid delegation. And all the babies 
and their parents. They were basically just all put on a plane and sort of the process was expedited and they just brought everybody over to Israel. Back in Israel, a parade of newborns. They will celebrate together, knowing the medical stress they've been through and very much aware that many in Nepal are still going through it. So what happened to the surrogates? Um, any idea? They checked with the agency what is the situation with the surrogate mothers and the answer was that two of them are back in India already and they weren't there in the earthquake. And what about all the surrogates who were in Nepal but hadn't given birth yet? Yeah, I mean, about them there's a big question. I mean, no one knows. There were like a worried fathers in Israel. It's terrifying. All my thoughts and all my prayers are for the surrogate mother and for the unborn child. Tal and Amir made it back to Israel with their babies. They were fine, but there were still a lot of questions. And if I were one of you guys, I would still be wondering, after all, these both of these women gave you, as you point out, a remarkable gift. Both of you believe that you hope, rather, both of you hope that that gift was well rewarded and was life changing. But both of you don't know at this point. You're just a little suspicious that maybe it wasn't. And don't, don't you have this funny feeling that you need to find out whether they got paid what you thought you'd paid them? Yes. Like, this is why we're so glad that we made the connection with you guys and we heard that you can... Find them, maybe. Yeah. So? We started a kind of a whole new leg of the story. Hello? Hello? Hi, Mali. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Ooh, I hear some other things, too. Oh, what do you hear? Actually, it might just be static on the line, but it kind of sounded like the ocean. I'll just switch off the fan. Just give me a second. Our producer, Molly Webster, was able to track down a reporter in India, Nilanjana Baumik, and she asked her if she could find those surrogates. Okay, so you had given me a name, right? Lotus, yeah. Lotus. Lotus has a representative in Nepal. I actually called that person in Nepal. And they did tell me, you know, the location of the clinic. And I spoke to the doctor and she said that, yes, I will put you in touch with one of the surrogates. And the next morning we were supposed to touch base again. But then, you know, she just totally went incommunicado. That's when the same day I opened my mail and there was a mail from Israel, you know, them asking me like, just like to stop the search for some time. And I was like, I was so near them. As far as we understand, what happened was that the doctor contacted Lotus. Lotus contacted Tal and Amir saying, call off the reporters. You're putting these women's lives in danger. If someone in their village sees a reporter hanging around, they'll know those women were surrogates. That's not something these surrogates want people to know. Stop. Here's, a, here's my understanding, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, is that we, we had asked someone to look for them, and that person yeah. got kind of close, and then word got back to the agency, and that's created yeah. some pressure for us to change and you know that's really what we're sort of staring at right now is how to respond we heard that there is a real threat on their life because of the culture of the society that they live in one of them was muslim i don't know if 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 the muslim society is going to accept the fact that she carried the pregnancy to a gay couple and to israelis and to israelis yeah Yeah. so that's a very very weird, very delicate situation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We don't want anything that may hurt uh, the surrogate. Well, I mean, hmm, we want to tell the story. We definitely don't want anyone to get hurt. But I do feel like we have an ethical obligation to hear from the women who do this. If not the specific women in this case, then 
people who represent their experience to whatever degree it can be represented. It would be it would feel wrong for that to be a voice that we don't hear. I don't know. I, I, it's like uh, it's for us. It's it's uh, uh, we don't want that anybody will contact our surrogate. Mm-hmm. And if it says that it's not going to be uh, without a story, so let's be it because it's not worth it for us. Okay, understood. Understood. We won't make any further attempts to contact those two those two uh, women. Yeah. Yeah. Just so we're all clear, I think what I'd like to do is to continue to pursue people who have been in similar situations but are not in any way connected to those two women or to you guys. Uh, okay. I mean, again, we need to uh, only make sure that uh, nobody's going to be hurt. Yeah. Absolutely. The Absolutely. That's where we left things with Tal and Amir. And then, uh, and then the story changed a lot. That's coming up. I guess in some ways, if this hadn't turned into a radio piece, the story could have ended here. Tal, Amir, and the three babies are all back home in Israel. Sleepless nights, for sure. A lot of crying and feeding. But all's basically good. The process was a wild success. But the story doesn't end here. It just becomes much, much more complicated. For everyone. And that includes the producers working on the story, too. Here's how Molly, Jad, and Robert started to think about it as it was unraveling. I would come out of conversations and I would think, oh, I totally get why people do that. Then I would come out of conversations and be like, nope, I'm back to, nope, mm-hmm. this is exploitation. Then I'd go into a conversation and think, like, you're misusing women's bodies. And then I would come out of a conversation and be like, oh, these women are empowered. I wonder if this is ultimately just about surrogacy. It's like, I, I hear this story mm-hmm. and I hear it as a story that's it's primarily about surrogacy, but it's also about uh, women's rights. It's about gay rights. It's about... Uh, Jewish culture in a way it's about it's about human trafficking to me while this may seem to be about a gay thing I don't think it really is I think it's uh, it's the first act of a play that's going to get richer and deeper and much more universal the business of generating life and there's something just to say it the business of generating life just makes it just feels troubled. This is the 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 deep consequence of having to take an alternate path to creating a life. So normally people create a life out of love or just out of sex or by accident or whatever. This is one where the the idea precedes the deed and the deed is going to be paid for. So the idea that you're going to pay for a life, that pay to bre- pay for a genesis is is the trouble and the beauty and the complicatedness of this thing from the beginning right to the very last moment of the piece. I guess I was thinking less about the business, but but to your point, Robert, like I do think it's like more than a it's a gay rights issue, but it's way more than a gay rights issue because I think like in the 21st century, you look around and you see everyone forming different types of families. Like mm-hmm. a traditional family is no longer the traditional family. Like that model of like what a family looks like and what parenthood is is getting totally blown up. Mm-hmm. So so did this story like make you think that oh, good thing that I didn't have to go through such a such a you know business of commercial baby making. Fuck yeah! Oh my <laughs> God, me. Yeah. absolutely me. Just oh the God. paperwork alone that I that they had to go through was. Whew. I would not want to go through what they went through. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so we all seem to agree how complicated this whole story is for Tal and Amir. But in the second part of this hour, Molly turns to the other side of this business, to the surrogates themselves. Act two, the business of generating life. We go back to Jad, Robert, and Molly. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. I'm Molly Webster. This is Radio Lab, and we will return now to our collaboration with Israel Story, producers Maya Kosovar and Yochai Maital. Uh, the story of Talanamir and their three babies. Now, that's how it started for us. It was a story of two guys trying to have some kids. But around the point of the earthquake, uh, the story really shifted for us. I mean, as it did for the entire world, really. Because we've been concentrating the tale so far on the fathers, but with 24-some-odd babies, that's an awful lot of women. Who had to carry those babies. So what could they be thinking? What is the story about them? How are they feeling about this transaction? Uh, how much are they getting? It, will it actually change their life? These are some of the questions we had. We gave those questions to Molly, and she sort of ran with it. Yeah. Yeah, so in the months after the earthquake... I guess you could say the like the political situation in Nepal changed. How everyone started looking at surrogacy changed. Once everyone saw these pictures of all these babies outside the Israeli embassy being put on airplanes and sent back to Israel, it just cracked open this huge debate, not just back in Israel, but in Nepal and in India, even internationally. Basically, you had groups coming out and saying like, you know, the feminists were saying this is exploitation and we're just using these women for their wombs. And there were op-ed articles about should we be shifting women across borders? Is this the way you want to do surrogacy? And then sort of the next thing that happens, uh, like three weeks after we talked to Tal and Amir, is that Nepal actually decided to ban surrogacy. Completely. Completely. And, uh, for and, and, both straight, for both same-sex couples, foreign couples, local couples, and for, for Nepali women couldn't do it, and Indian women wow. couldn't come into their borders and do it. No more surrogacy, no more loopholes. No more surrogacy, no more loopholes. Uh, but hmm. then the confusion was that they banned surrogacy, but there were still uh, pregnant surrogates on the ground. And oh. so they sort of existed in this gray zone. Huh. Um, and in the midst of that was when we went out to try and find surrogates. In Nepal, all the surrogates are kept in what are called shelter houses, which are just like houses that um, agencies rent out that have a lot Even of pregnant women. Even though this women. is banned, still, they still have these houses. Yes, they still have the houses. Like The rumors are that they move the houses further away from the city center, like attract less attention. And so uh, we found a Nepali reporter. I'm Prikuti Rai, and I am a freelance journalist based in Kathmandu. Uh, to go uh, try and get into one of these shelter houses. So... The shelter house is actually quite far from the main city center, almost half an hour or 40 minutes drive from Kathmandu. It's on a, on a hilltop because these are the outskirts of Kathmandu where new settlements have just started. Uh, so it, it was actually a school building which they turned into a shelter because I think the uh, school had left after the earthquake. The moment I reached the first floor, I was so surprised. It was very noisy, a lot of children playing around. 
And turns out a lot of women bring in their young children if they're too young to be left alone. Really? Yeah. And how many women were there? There were around, I think, 20 or 22 women there. 20 or 22 women on the first floor of this building? Yeah. This shelter house was run by another Israeli agency, so not Lotus, but a different one. And uh, we're guessing that most of the women were carrying babies for Israeli couples. And at least the women I saw who were outside the room or who had their doors open, they seemed to be around 30 to early 40s. Really? Yeah. I mean, the first time I saw, I saw the first woman I talked to, how many years she was wearing like a mustard color sari. She had some bangles. All the women had some bangles in their hands. And she said she was 36 years old. From Kolkata. She has two girls. Brakuti asked, How old are your girls? And she said, Eight and twelve. And then Brakuti asked, like, Why are you doing this? And the woman said, Oh, I'm doing it for them. It's because, you know, we have a lot of uh, financial problem. My husband is a rickshaw driver and we don't make enough. And um, she worked as a maid in Delhi. And ultimately, she said she had no other way to raise money for her daughters to get married because in Hindu weddings, the bride's family pays off the groom in the form of a dowry. And the plan was to use the money from surrogacy for the dowries. She'd been in Kathmandu for three months, so she was in her first trimester. And when Brakuti asked her, Does she know who the baby is for? She said no. But she knows it's not hers. And actually, all the women that Brakuti talked to were very, very clear about this. This is a job. The second woman I talked to, 30 years old, also a maid in Delhi, also two daughters. She looked all dressed up. She was all ready to, as if she was about to leave somewhere. And then I realized, okay, her husband is here. She had just given birth. And she put the job sentiment pretty plainly. So she said, and I'm translating here, I will give gladly. I will give the baby from my womb. If I will think this is my baby, then how will it work? I have two children. I cannot take this child home. I will have to give. I have no sadness, no problem. Anytime Brakuti asked these women, are you conflicted? Will you have trouble giving the baby up? She always got the same answer. They all said that we would happily give away the child. And one of them even said, If the baby comes out right now, I'll just give it right away. And then she laughed. (laughs) Did you get a sense that these women didn't want it? known that they were doing this? Um, I mean, some of them did and some of them didn't. Because some women were like, They said, like, now that I'm here, my neighbors, my family, everyone knows. Hmm. And then when Rakuti asked her, You know, did they have an opinion? Is it right or wrong? She answered, No. I'm here for the money. So I would not listen to any opinions. If it was wrong, I would not come here. 
But some of them were like, <laughs> why would I tell anyone, you know? There was one particular woman, 32 years old, very cheerful, nail polish on, and she had like this pink lipstick on. She said, people in my village simply do not believe these things. That one can have children by getting injected or taking medicines. They won't believe this. She kind of drew parallels with how some of the people in a village had done something similar when they bred cows or fishes. She said, like, maybe they'll understand, but my family will not understand. She says, I have told lies to them. So how much in the end do they make? I asked him, how much money do you get here? I talked to four women and the figure was the same. lakhs. What does that mean in in dollars? So if you do the conversion um, today, it's 5,300 U.S. dollars. And the way it works is that they get paid a small amount of money every month that they're pregnant, and then at the end, they get a lump sum. Burkuti says that for these women, at the end of the pregnancy, that lump sum is like, let's say, around two or three thousand dollars. Which is the amount that Tal and Amir heard outside the embassy. The total sum that they have when they go back home is quite, you know, it's not a lot. So five-ish thousand dollars is what you're hearing? Yeah. Well, that's a difference. To sort of see if this was a number that was just coming out of that shelter house or if it was something that was like the going rate, I guess. Uh, We talked to six surrogates who were in India that same rate, around $5,000, kept coming up. And we did hear a range from one surrogate, um, and this was about a friend of hers, uh, we heard as low as 1000 A surrogate getting only $1,000 for a pregnancy? Yeah. Hello. Hello, this is Jerusalem calling. Hi. <laughs> this is New York Hello. answering. Ultimately, we took this information back to Tal and Amir because this was originally their question. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about the Um, money part now. All right. So the last time we talked to you, you thought you were paying your surrogates $12,000. Yes. uh, Around-ish. We've been off reporting, and it seems like the number that's coming up most consistently for what surrogates are reporting as their rate is $5,300 U.S. dollars. What? Yeah, I think it's too much. Wow. Wow. It's too low. It's too low. Really? Yeah. I want to cry. We explained to them that if you actually look at the contract, the line that looks like it's payment straight to the surrogate doesn't actually say this is payment for the surrogate. It says this is payment to surrogacy services. And it's sort of like once you add in that second word, it opens the door to all kinds of things. She's getting less than a half. It's very, it's like, we feel like suckers. So who get the money? So who got the money? That question, it hung in the air for a few weeks. Until I have uh, around 
seven minutes before I go into something. I'm just in my car now. And, and I was finally able to talk to Donna McDossie, who is the head of Lotus, which is the agency that Talon Amir used in Nepal. She had just, uh, the morning I talked to her, she had just flown in from Nepal to Israel, and I caught her in a car on her way back to the airport, and she was going to fly off to Australia. And I asked her how much do the surrogates actually get paid. I can tell you truly that I worked in India and Nepal since 2010, and I cannot tell you exactly how much a surrogate holds in her hand at the end of the procedure because we don't transfer the, uh, the funds to the surrogate herself. She's saying she has no idea. And the reason she has no idea is because uh, she said this and other agencies I spoke to said this, is that when you're working on the ground in foreign countries under the umbrella of surrogacy, you are dealing with a lot of middlemen. And the middlemen have middlemen and there are sub-middlemen, the, the people who find the women in India, who get all the paperwork done, who get them to the border, who get them over the border, who then bring them to Nepal. Someone meets them in Kathmandu, gets them to the shelter house. And all those people... They need to get paid. I, I truly can tell you that I truly don't know after the agent, you know, how much the surrogate they have in their hand. We don't come and ask the agent exactly how much goes for her compensation, exactly how much goes for her uh, allowance. We don't go into that. I can tell you that. Well, I guess I was thinking about I would feel conflicted as the head of an agency to be like, I think the money is going to some people, but I just don't know. Like, I think that would niggle at me. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing that you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, it, you know, you can't look at the whole world and say, okay, I'm going to make it uh, brighter. I cannot deal with all the problems in the world. We are trying to give them as much as possible. We pay the money for this woman gets a life and and now we understand it's not exactly like that it's not right i mean that's real i think the deep question here underneath after everything is is over is when when we do a generous thing like we give people families who couldn't have families before but that becomes a business is there something about the business of making a family that is always going to be a little troubling and there are no perfect ways to do this or is there a way to pull this off in some I just don't know I mean like I still have three more embryos that are uh, in the freezer in Nepal Mm -hmm. I don't know if the next time I would not do the process maybe in the state. The U.S. is like an entirely different surrogacy scene, which we're just not going to get into here. But the interesting thing that uh, that uh, Donna said and and ahead of another uh, agency was that they think that in the next like five to ten years, the U.S. will be one of the only countries where surrogacy is still happening. Things are closing down. Most of the things are closing down. So obviously Nepal has a ban, Thailand. It looks like uh, in a few days after this piece comes out that India may ban it for foreigners. Cambodia, there's rumors that they're about to ban it. And even in Canada, there are talks of new restrictions on surrogacy. And this is, these are bans like not just for same-sex couples, but uh, hetero Total. couples, single people, everybody. Oh, wow. And the main reason for the, all these bans and restrictions is, is worries about uh, exploiting women? Yeah. 
I feel weird about that a little bit, though. Because? Because if you're, if you're trying to, if you, as we heard, these women are making a business decision. Whether or not we agree with it as an entirely separate thing, they're, it seem, they seem like they're making a decision. Then we're going to take it away in order to protect them feels, I don't know. It's funny because at times it also feels... It, you just think like, okay, these women can decide how they're going to use their own bodies. Right. It's a little bit like, a little bit like the abortion debate in mm-hmm. a way. You it know? totally is. Well, but, but by the same token, it's, it's, it's not wrong for a society to say, hey, there are certain things we just won't allow. We won't give you that choice because we, we find that the choice itself is, um, is wrong. Are you... mm-hmm. I mean, it's fair, but like one of the arguments against banning it is that, is that there's still a demand for surrogacy and that that's not going to go away. Yes. And so it just pushes um, so the system underground. And so... Uh, and that way it's a lot like abortion. And, and then that way it's a lot, you know, shadier. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was is that then Burkuti actually went and talked to the women about like what this job does for them. Like, okay, so it's not the crazy amount of money we thought it might have been. It's $5,000. Like, what does that do for you? One woman said that, you know, when I get this money, I'm going to go back home and start something on my own. Start a small shop, you know, my own little enterprise. The other women? All of them wanted to use this money to build a house, buy some land. Can you buy a plot of land in New Delhi for five grand? You definitely cannot get a plot of land in New Delhi for five grand. But what these women do is they take the money and they go back to their original village and they use it there to buy a small plot of land. And that's totally doable and it's actually no small feat. Having that ownership of land is so important in our societies in South Asia. Once you own land in South Asia, it raises your um, like socioeconomic status. It's something that's passed down through generations. So you're like creating something for your family. And if you're one of the women that maybe already have land, the thing you can do with that $5,000 is build a house on it. Let's say a very small, like a mud house or, you know. Like Keep in mind, like these women, their day jobs are all made, right? And so they make less than $100 a month. They said they had it not been for this, I mean, they would have never, I mean, probably never earned this much money at, at a single chance. But more than that, like, when you go into this, or at least when I went into this, the thing that I expected to see was like, okay, these are poor, desperate women that are being forced into this, like, right? They've been dragged across the border. I think the thing that I was surprised to see when I looked at the transcripts was that even though these women don't have a lot of options, and yes, they are poor, they had chosen to do this. Out of the limited options that they had, they looked at them all and they thought, like, this is the thing that I'm going to do to get what I want. Hmm. It felt like these women were making a choice. I I asked them, what if you were given a chance to go abroad, let's say Dubai or Qatar, because a lot of women from India and Nepal, they go there. One of them said that, you know, like, why would I do that? That would be very far away. She says that here, the kids can come, their husbands can visit. Uh, They are fed well. The surrogates get good medical care. They're taken care of during the whole nine months. And, And for those whole nine months, they're sending money back home and back home, there's one less mouth to feed. I think, you know, we, uh, I mean, the way we pass judgment, you know, you just pity on these women. But I think uh, they they are very aware of what they're doing. They might be exploited to some level, like you said, but it seemed like the women are, uh, in some ways, they are in charge of 
deciding how they want their life to be and we don't have to look at them with um with pity the last woman that Burkuti spoke to, she was a 32-year-old woman from Darjeeling. She spoke in Nepali, and she told Burkuti, I came here in March. My embryo transfer was done once, but I don't know if it was due to the earthquake or something else, but it didn't get heartbeat, and it got washed. She said that she lost the fetus in two months and they tried it twice on her. Prakuti, how did you feel when the child got washed? Surrogate. I felt bad. What to say? It felt like it was my own. And they won't give money if it's unsuccessful. Wow, wait. She, I, I'm like, I didn't know. If you miscarry, you don't get paid? Yes, yes, yes. She says it's treated like a business. You get paid for every month you successfully carry. And if you do lose the baby, depending on where it is in the pregnancy, part of the money is refunded to the intended parents. Surrogate. Most of my friends had successful stories to share back in Delhi. Some of my friends made a house with the money. Some bought land. I felt good. She basically says she wishes she had done this earlier, because now with the ban... She was being sent back to her village. She was still weeping a little of what could have been if she was, you know, if the eggs were healthy enough, if her health was all right. Burkuti, will you come again if this opens back up and try again? Surrogate. Yes, I will come. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> hey, it's Robert Krulwich, co-host of Radio Lab. Israel Story is brought to you. Wait, let me clear my throat. <clears throat> Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com/israelstory to hear all of our previous episodes. Our staff includes Mishi Harman, Yohai Metal, Shai Citron, Citron, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosovar, Benny Becker, and Shoshi Smulovitz. Rachel Fisher and Sophie Sophie Shore, our production interns. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. For help on today's episode, thanks to Irit Rosenblum or Irit Rosenblum. Rudy Grossman, Atara Benchana, and Noga Berger. Whew. I think we did it. Hope I got all those names right. End of new messages. Can I just say one thing, which is either for a tape or not, uh, that, that we're... Uh, thank you, guys. This has been a real uh-huh. amazing experience for us. And, for us uh, too. Thank, it's thank been you. It's really, really, we're really, really grateful to to have 
whether it happened because of Venetian blinds or whatever, we're very grateful. <laughs> Thank you yeah, so much. Is, yeah, you guys have been amazing. Yeah, Thank I you, agree. guys. So a big thanks to our friends at Radiolab. Radiolab is produced by Jada Bumrad. Their staff includes Brenna Farrell, David Gable, Dylan Keefe, Matt Keelty, Robert Krulwich, Andy Mills, Latif Nasser, Kelsey Paget, Ariane Wack, Molly Webster, Soren Wheeler, and Jamie York. With help from Simon Adler, Alexandra Lee Young, Abigail Keel, and Alexandra Brennan. Their fact-checkers are Eva Dasher and Michelle Harris. And that's our episode. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on all our previous episodes. Just search for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. And if you've got a moment, please rate us and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Okay, so I've said this before, but how many of you guys have heard about Audible or MailChimp, Stamps.com? And you know why? It's because they have understood the power of podcast sponsorships. And if you want to enter that game, contact us. Not only will your sponsorship support our growing show, but you'll also reach a phenomenal and engaged audience. For more information, just email sponsor at prx.org. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Israel Story. Yalla bye.